Ephesians chapter 1 will be in this text this morning. We are in a series entitled The Pathways of Grace, and we stepped out of it for a little bit, and we're stepping back in, and you remember we did a number of messages on the Word of God, this essential means of grace that God uses that we might walk with Him and serve Him in His purposes, and and we started talking about prayer, and I think we had one or two messages so far. So we're going to continue learning about prayer. The title of the message is Learning to Pray from the Masters. And we're going to look at the prayers of Paul this morning. There's just something about learning to do something, learning a skill from someone who is a master. There are a few ways, a few better ways, to grow in something than to get around somebody who knows what they're doing. I like archery. I enjoy shooting my bow. And when I first started out, I really didn't know what I was doing. And, and I went to an archery course near where we lived and, and, um, and did a little uh, target practice. And, and I wasn't very consistent. I would pull back the bow. And actually what I would do is I'd pull back the bow and I'd lift it up. And as soon as I'd get that little marker thing on the target, it would be like moving all around. And as soon as it kind of got the target, I'd let go and hope that it would hit the target. Well, thankfully, while I was doing that target practice, I met a, a guy... Uh, about my age, who was a former Olympic contender for archery. And so I got to shoot my bow with him, and he was very gracious and just gave me tips and helped walk me through, not only actually not only to how to shoot, and he told me what you want to do is you want to bring it up and hold it on the target and count every one or two seconds and then slowly let go and let that arrow shoot. So he helped me with that and made a big difference. Not that I'm contending for the Olympics now, but at least I can hit the target. And he also helped me with my bow and all this maintenance stuff. So he was a master. And I learned from him. Established my ability at some level from this master. Well, I don't know about you, but when it comes to prayer, I feel like a novice. I feel like the guy who's kind of like moving the target around and hoping somewhere I'm going to get on that target and then I'm just going to let a prayer go. Well, Paul is like the Olympic contender, and he is a man of prayer, and you study the life of Paul and the prayers of Paul, they're, they're wonderful. So we're going to come this morning before this master and learn about prayer from God's Word. But before we do that, let's pray. Lord, we just thank you that you have not left us alone. Lord, you have been at work over the centuries, and you've given us men like the Apostle Paul, and you've given us your holy and perfect Word that we might learn, that we might learn to pray. And so, God, as we prayed before, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray this morning. Use the preaching of Your Word, Lord, as well, to speak to us that as we experience this time, it will not merely be learning to pray from Paul, but You Yourself, God, would be here with us, teaching us about prayer. Lord, we're dependent on You. I'm weak sinful, but you are good and gracious. So we come to you and we ask you to work in these ways and be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can turn to chapter 1 and verse 15. We're going to read through a section there and then we're going to jump to chapter 3. These are two prayers of Paul in the book of Ephesians. Chapter 1, verse 15, Paul has just spent time talking about the glorious gospel of grace. And he says in verse 15, For this reason... 
because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. And I want to skip over to chapter 3, verse 14. Similar prayer, and it's really a continuation of the same prayer. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's the prayer of Paul in Ephesians. What a wonderful example of prayer we have there. And we could probably do a whole series just on this section of Ephesians. Just talking about the, the truths that are there. But what I want to focus on this morning are Paul's attitude and practice of prayer. His attitude and practice of prayer. And I can sum up, I believe, how Paul prayed. And what I want to draw from this, there's many things we could draw, but what I want to draw from this in regards to his attitude and practice, and that is this, that Paul prayed with a heart full of gratitude. Paul prayed with a heart full of gratitude. And he prayed with his heart full of gratitude that people would be changed in their attitude. I know it sounds kind of goofy and it rhymes. A heart full of gratitude that people would be changed in their attitude. But I think it's an accurate way to understand Paul's prayer and how he prayed. Pray with a heart full of gratitude that people be changed in their attitude. And I think it's a helpful way to remember how Paul prayed. So that's what we're going to talk about. His heart full of gratitude and how he prayed that people would be changed in their attitude. Do you see that there in the verse early on, the way he starts out his prayer for the Ephesians? He says, For this reason... Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Paul is aware as he begins to pray and as he communicates that to the Ephesians, he's aware of the grace of God at work in the Ephesians. And it, it fills his heart to know that God has been at work He's seen their faith and he's seen their love one for another. And his reaction in prayer is not to come to pray and ask for things right away, but to come and to give thanks. And he says here he does not cease to give thanks. 
He keeps on giving thanks. Whenever he's praying, whenever he's thinking of the Ephesians, the thing that he does first and foremost is to give thanks for them. To give thanks to God for his work, his grace in their lives. And if you peruse through Paul's writings, you'll see this over and over again. When he writes to the Thessalonians, he says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. To the Corinthians, this troublesome group, the way he starts out his letter, he says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. And then to his dear friend Timothy, same sort of thing. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. This is a man who, when he came to pray, was aware of the grace of God and was full of gratitude. And so when we pray, we need to keep that in mind. And I I don't know about you, but often when I pray, I come into the Lord's presence and my first words are, Lord, would you do this? Lord, we need your help here. And there's nothing wrong with asking God. We're, We're told to come before him and ask, but I very infrequently come and say, Lord, thank you. Thank you for your work in my life. Thank you for the work you are doing in my family. Thank you for a wife that loves you and and loves me and her her kids. Thank you for these kids. Thank you for my church. That's how Paul prays. He comes before the Lord and he's, he's full of gratitude. He's full of thanksgiving. I believe we're to be people who come to prayer the same way. And the question is, why did Paul do this? Why was he someone who prayed this way? Was he well taught as a child? Did he have good ad- etiquette? Did he just know that, you know, when you, when you think of someone, you should be thankful because you're supposed to be thankful. And, and when you talk to someone, the first thing you should always say to them is something thankful. And so he was just kind of following the protocol of a polite Hebrew. I, no, I, I think there's a lot more at work. Because etiquette... And just merely knowing you're supposed to give, to give thanks, and there's nothing wrong with, with that, but there's more to it. Because that won't sustain you. That won't sustain you. It won't, wouldn't have sustained Paul dealing with the Corinthians. At that point, etiquette should have been gone because the Corinthians had just thrown etiquette away in, in their treatment of Paul. But there was something deeper driving Paul to this attitude of gratitude in his prayers. I believe that what was going on in Paul was he was a man of genuine humility. Genuine humility. There was real humility, not just doing what he was supposed to do, not just acting humble. We can get caught in that trap, thinking that humility is really a matter of appearance. No, I believe with Paul there was genuine humility. Genuine humility will show itself through trials. And for him there was genuine humility. And genuine humility is what drives thankfulness. Because you can only really be thankful for something that you don't deserve. Getting something good that you don't deserve. You can only really be thankful when you recognize that ultimately this thing you got, you didn't earn. It isn't yours by right. 
And so when you're given something good and when you observe something good, you recognize, wow, that is wonderful and it's a gift to me. And there's gratitude. There's thankfulness that comes from that. And so Paul understood that. You see, pride works the other way around. Pride, pride works against thankfulness. And, and often we can cover our pride. I can cover my pride by etiquette. But behind that behavior, the perhaps acting thankful, can be pride. And pride has the other view. Pride says, I deserve this. This is mine. I deserve kids who always do what I tell them to do. I deserve good Christian kids. I deserve a boss who pays me well and treats me right. I deserve a church that is perfect in every way. That's what pride does. And when you come to things with that perspective, you're going to come to prayer without thanksgiving. You're going to come to prayer. I'm going to come to prayer and say, God, would you do this? Would you work in my kids? Because I'm tired of the way they behave. I want them to be this way. Instead of Paul's example, coming recognizing, you know what? I don't deserve anything. Paul understood that in and of himself, he did not have a right to the blessing of God. And I believe that should characterize us. He knew that he had forfeited his right to the blessing of God through his sin, through his rejection of God, his rejection of Christ, through his rebellion. He saw himself as the worst of sinners. He was humble, and he knew he was hopelessly lost without Christ. He had a humble and realistic self-assessment. Yet, he also knew that the grace of God had worked in his life and had broke through into his life when he was set on sinning and destroying the church of God. God had intervened in his life and knocked him to his feet and revealed truth to him. And he knew it was entirely of grace. Nothing he had earned. He hadn't figured God out. He was running the other way. And God intervened and showed him His truth, showed him the Gospel, showed him that Christ was the Savior and Lord. And so Paul knew about grace. He understood grace. He knew that God had come in and given him Christ and salvation. And so from that vantage point of genuine humility, honest self-assessment, and awareness of grace, it filled his heart with gratitude. And so as he prayed, he came with that attitude. He came to prayer thankful. Really, that's a gospel-centered attitude, isn't it? The gospel, as we center on the truth of the gospel, teaches us these truths that we are lost in our sin and rebels apart from Christ and don't deserve anything from God. We have forfeited the blessings of God. We have forfeited our citizenship in God's family through our sin. And we are like condemned criminals. We've lost our rights by our behavior, by our actions. We have no claim on God. We have no claim on Him. We have no right to say, God, you must give me this and this and this. When we recognize that and then recognize what He's done for us, it builds gratitude. It gives us humility. And that's what was going on in Paul's life. He was humble and just full of gratitude. So as he looked at people's lives, he just he was amazed. God is at work in these people's lives. The grace of God is building a church. There's people who actually believe in Jesus. That's wonderful. And so many times we can come without thanksgiving, without humility, and we complain about what we don't have instead of recognizing, look at what we have. It's wonderful. We've got a church full of people who know and love Jesus. That's a miracle. We've got a whole room here full of miracles. 
God has been at work. God has rescued people. And not only that, they're growing and we are growing in love and demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit in our midst. That's a miracle. And as we come to pray, we want to pray that way. We want to pray for one another, aware of the grace of God, as Paul was. C.J. Mahaney, in his message, Grace and the Adventure of Leadership, mentions a good illustration from a Peanuts cartoon. In this cartoon, Lucy is leaning over, looking at her brother Linus. Linus is there, and the caption says, Whenever I look at you, I feel a criticism coming on. Too often we're like that. Too often I'm like that. Too often when I look at other people and look at what's going on around me, I'm thinking about what's wrong. I'm like Lucy. Whenever I look at this situation or this person, there's no one in particular I'm thinking of, so don't worry. Uh, There's a criticism that comes on. The first thing, my first impulse is to think about what's wrong. But that denies the truth of the gospel. That's saying that I deserve something. That's saying that this person must measure up to my expectations, and I will let them know as soon as they fall below this this level. But the Gospel says, Paul, you forfeited all your rights to anything like that. Any good thing you enjoy comes from the goodness of God. comes from His grace, His kindness, His patience. And any good inheritance you have ultimately comes because there has been one who has come and pleased the Father in every way and earned the blessing of God in every way. And He, in His great mercy and love, has chosen to bestow on you that blessing, forgiveness, and new life in Him. And so when I bring that to bear in relationships, it should totally change my attitude. It should fill me with thanksgiving. Paul knew he was the worst sinner, and he knew he had the greatest Savior there was. So as he came to God in prayer, gratitude, filled his heart. And he spent time giving thanks. He says he did not stop giving thanks for them. And he says that in a number of places. So can you imagine what it would be like to be around Paul if he were here on Sunday morning praying with us? We'd probably be like, hey, Paul, you know, we've we got to pray for some other things. You've got to stop giving thanks. You're, we only got 15 minutes here. You know, you're taking 10 minutes just to give thanks to God. What's, you know, we've got to pray. We've got to act. I mean, I think that's what he would be like. He would just give thanks. And he would probably just run through his list. Because if you read through, he's constantly giving thanks for all these people. And it doesn't mean that every hour of the day, every minute, he's just walking down the street, thank you, God, for this one, thank you for that one. But as he prayed throughout the day, and his habit probably was to pray three times a day. A good Jew would pray three times a day, about an hour each time or so. So he probably prayed a good amount. And as he prayed, he was giving thanks. And he was spending much of his time thanking God for his work of grace. So there's a lesson from the Master that I'm listening to myself as I prepare this. Recognize, I want my prayer life to reflect that same quality. When I come before God, I spend time just thanking Him. Thanking Him for His grace. Thanking Him for His work around me. Recognizing I don't deserve any of it, but I get all this. And He works in His people. I want to have that practice. I want to learn and be like Paul in that. Thanking God in prayer. So Paul prayed with a heart full of gratitude. And he prayed that the people would be changed in their attitude. So he moves on from there to pray after giving thanks and mentioning that he gives thanks to pray and ask for certain things. And he asked for the very best thing he could give or God could give to 
of people. He asks for the very best thing that they could have. It's not perfect health. It's not a life surrounded by loved ones, as good as that may be. It's not freedom from want. It's not riches that he asks for. He asks that they may know all that they have in Christ. He asks God that the Ephesians might understand what they already have in Christ. That's the best thing I believe Paul believes he can ask for for his people. You ever play that game? You ask someone, if you had three wishes, what would you wish for? And, and after they say, well, I'd wish for three more wishes. After, the, after they get over that one, they, they might say, world peace, or health for my family, or a gazillion dollars, or you know that my family and extended family would know Christ, which is a wonderful prayer and wish. But Paul, when asked, what do you want to pray for, Paul? What does he say? I pray that God's people in Ephesus might know what they already have in Christ. It's at the top of his list that we would know, that the Ephesians would know what they already have in Christ. That, again, is a lesson from the Master. I believe I'm going to tease this out. Lord willing, this will impact our lives. I think this is a very profound truth that should affect our prayer. I have found in my experience as a pastor... Just as a leader as well, as a Christian leader as well, that there's one thing that makes a huge difference in people's lives. There's one thing that really makes all the difference. When I survey the people that I've known, and I look at those who have struggled and those who are growing and and experiencing victory, when I look at those who might be immature Christians versus mature Christians, when I look at those who are experiencing the fruit of the Spirit, versus walking in the flesh, there's one thing I see consistently in these people. That those who are doing well in the Lord have a grasp of what they have in Christ already. They know what their salvation entails. They know what they have. And those who struggle, those who are immature, those who are maybe walking in the flesh, they're not understanding. They're not grasping. And if you interview them and begin to ask them about their lives, that will become clear. Paul understood this truth. And he knew the best thing he could do for the Corinthians would be to pray for them, that they might know what they have in Christ, that they would understand. It's at the top of his list for them because he knows that all these other things will take care of themselves. It's interesting in the book of Ephesians, the beginning of Ephesians, chapters 1 through 3, are all about what we have in Christ. And if you look through Paul's letters, as he brings teaching, he does that over and over again. He spends the beginning part talking about what we have in Christ, what is ours in Christ already. He does this in Ephesians, and not only does he explain it in Ephesians, but he prays for it in Ephesians. Because he knows that if they understand these things, then the rest of Ephesians, chapters 4, 5, and 6, are going to come almost naturally to them. Yes, there'll be work. Yes, they will have to apply themselves, but when they understand and grasp what they have in Christ already, the holiness and obedience and love that's required of them that follows will flow all the more easy in their lives. And so Paul prays that they would know what they have in Christ because this is a key understanding 
He wants them to know. He wants them to understand what they have in Christ. And this knowing is not just informational knowing. It's experiential knowing. It's not just intellectual. It's emotional, spiritual, experiential. He wants them to encounter these truths in a living way. And so he prays for them. He, it says he does not cease to give thanks. And then he prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. He asks God to reveal the truth, what they already have in Christ, and he prays that God will give a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. In the NIV it says, he prays that God will give the spirit, the Holy Spirit. And I think that's a, a more accurate translation. For when you see this word, the spirit and wisdom and revelation in Scripture, it's speaking of the Holy Spirit. That's the common phrase and the common meaning. So I, I believe Paul is asking that God would give His Spirit to His people. The Spirit of wisdom and revelation. He wants the Spirit of God to be poured out on His people that they might understand these truths. Now, just a couple of verses earlier, I think it's in verse 13, he says that to be a Christian is to be sealed with the Spirit. If you are a believer, you already have the Spirit. Yet we see him here in this verse asking God to give the Spirit of wisdom and revelation. And later on in Ephesians, he says the same thing in a couple other places. He understands that we need constant refreshings from the Holy Spirit. We need constant fillings and experiences of the Holy Spirit in our lives to understand truth. That God wants us to have fresh encounters. And so Paul asks for that. Lord, would you bless these folks? Would you give them your Spirit? Would you, by the power of your Spirit, reveal to them the Gospel and what they have in Christ? So he starts out his prayer asking the Spirit to move. The Spirit of wisdom and revelation. And we as believers are to approach God with that understanding as well. We need the Holy Spirit. We need the Spirit of God to understand the things of God. We can read through and recite the Gospel and have it do nothing in our lives if the Spirit of God doesn't breathe. We need to pray, God, send Your Spirit. Grant us wisdom and revelation. The Holy Spirit is absolutely necessary for a fresh encounter and fresh understanding of our salvation. And if you think you can go through the Christian life merely filling your mind up with information as essential as that first step might be and do okay, you're wrong. You can have your mind full of all the right theology, all the right things, but if you don't experience the Spirit of God breathing on the Gospel and illumining these things to your life, you will not know your salvation. And so Paul understands that. So he prays that this, God would give the Spirit. He would pour out the Spirit on them. And really, we are a church that identifies ourselves as charismatic. And in some ways, I don't like that word because it has all this baggage that comes with it. But the, the bottom line of the fact that we're charismatic isn't that we believe that tongues and prophecy are for today, though we do believe that. That's a minor point of the gifts of the Spirit and the tent of the Spirit. This is the summary of our charismatic distinctive. That if the Spirit of God does not work, nothing happens. If the Spirit doesn't breathe on His Word, nothing happens. If God doesn't work in and through our lives, nothing happens. We are dependent on the Holy Spirit and His work in and through us. 
And, 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 and in some ways, I, I don't even care if you necessarily don't believe in tongues and prophecy, though I would advocate that. That's not my emphasis. That's not our emphasis. We need the Spirit of God. We need encounters with the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to breathe on us, to show us truth, to reveal the Son to us and through us. That's our charismatic distinctive. And Paul understands that. So as he prays for the Ephesians, he prays, Oh God, pour out your Spirit. Give them your Spirit. Give them fresh encounters with the Holy Spirit. And those encounters can be a whole range of things. They can be dramatic encounters where you fall down and experience something physical perhaps. They can be encounters where you're just before the Lord in your quiet time in the morning and you read a a scripture and all of a sudden, bing, the light goes on. That's what that means. That's the Holy Spirit. We want the whole gamut of the Spirit's work in our lives to, to illumine us to these truths that we have. And so Paul prays that the Spirit would work. He prays that He would open the heart, eyes of their hearts. He wants them to have an experiential knowledge of these things. He prays that the eyes of their heart would be open. He doesn't say the synapses of their brain. No, that's important. Our brains need to work. God uses our brains. But that's only the first step. Information is only the first step towards revelation. And we do need to know, know intellectually these things. But Paul prays that the eyes of their hearts might be opened. He wants us deep in our hearts, at the seat of who we are, at the seat of our understanding, at the seat of our emotions and our will, at the seat of our actions. He wants us to experience these truths. Christianity is not merely an intellectual faith. Christianity is inescapably experiential. It is inescapably experiential. We are to experience these truths. As a matter of fact, if you have not experienced these truths in some measure, you may not be a believer. For Paul, in another part of the Scripture, talks about the fact that God has poured out His love in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That it is the Christian's universal experience that the, the love of God has filled our hearts. Now, I, I don't, I'm not trying to say it has to be some great emotional big event, but there needs to be an experience of His love, an experience of the Spirit saying, the Father loves you. Christ died for your sins. You are mine. You belong to me. He wants us in our hearts to understand, to not merely have information, but experience. We can study something all we want, but we're just going to know about it. Peg and I have the privilege of, for our 20th anniversary this fall, to, to go down to the Caribbean. That's where we went for our honeymoon. And we, through the gift of Others are able to go to a place and stay down there and have airfare covered, which is wonderful. And it's at Grand Cayman Islands. I don't know if you guys have heard of it, but it's beautiful. And, and we already know about it. It's in the fall. And we've already got online, and I've already got on Google Earth and zoomed in to the Grand Cayman Island and looked, and we've looked at pictures, and it looks great. But all we have right now is information and pictures, and we're excited already. It'll be quite different when we go down to the Grand Cayman Islands and we're sitting on the shore in our lounge chairs together enjoying sea breezes and a sunset. That'll be different. That's the sort of experience, the sort of faith we belong to. God wants us to experience His presence, experience His love, experience the knowledge of our salvation. And so He prays that way for them. 
He wants them to know. He wants them to experience. And then he prays for specifics. And because of time and because of the weight of these truths, I can't cover them too much in depth, but he prays for a few things here in chapter 1 and in verse chapter 3 as well. He prays that the hope, they may know the hope to which God has called them. They may know the hope. He wants them to know the hope to which God has called them. This hope. Hope is a powerful thing. When hope operates in our lives, there is ability to endure great trials and strive for things. If there is hope in our lives, if we know something lies at the end of our struggles, we can continue to struggle. And if we know that something infinitely good and glorious lies at the end of our lives, we can endure very much. And so Paul wants the Ephesians to understand the hope that on the final day, on the day of judgment, because of the merits of Christ, His life and His death in our stead, because of His resurrection, on the the final day of judgment, when we stand before God, God is going to say, not guilty. This one is mine. All His or her sins are wiped away because of my Son and because of the life of my Son. This one belongs to me. And we we will pass through judgment unscathed because of Christ. And then we will enter into our inheritance, our reward, where we get to be with the Lord forever and His saints forever, beholding His glory without sin in the new heaven and the new earth forever and ever. No more weeping, no more pain, no more tears, no more aging. The present... (laughs) All those over 40 say, Amen! (laughs) With the Lord forever. Forever. That's real life. This isn't real life. This isn't the real thing. This isn't the final thing. The final thing awaits us. And so Paul prays, may they know the hope to which they're called. Because he knows the power of the knowledge of our hope. He prays also that we might know the riches of our inheritance, of his inheritance in the saints. Similarly, with our hope, this wonderful, the wonderful riches that we possess in God, the God of all glory. We belong to him. We're forgiven. We're adopted into His family. We're graciously guarded from harm. He works all things for our good. And then He will bring us into His presence, into His glory. We will see His glory, the One who is glorious and shines so bright that the the seraphim can't even look at Him. He is going to be our God. And we are going to be His. And we're going to be with Him. And we'll approach Him and enjoy Him forever with all the saints. That's our inheritance That's our riches. The greatest thrill there could ever be. The deepest love we could ever know. The greatest and grandest experience you could ever imagine. The things in this life are only tastes of what lies ahead with Him. They come from the God who who is all these things. But they are not God Himself. And so they're limited. We're going to have unlimited love. Unlimited thrill. Unlimited experience and blessing in His presence forever. So Paul prays that the people might know these riches. He prays that they might know power as well. The Ephesians lived in a place where witchcraft and demonic power was rampant. They lived perhaps in fear. They lived under an oppressive, powerful empire. And so Paul prays that they would know the power that is there in Christ. The same power that raised Christ from the dead. The same power that is in Christ and has led him to be victorious over sin and death and and created a new body 
and, and brought him as the first fruits. That same power is our power. That same power that has exalted him to the right hand and he rules over all things now is ours. The one who rules over all entities, all spiritual beings, all earthly beings is our king. The head of our church, the universal church. His power. So Paul prays that we would know this power. There's no situation or person or doubt that he cannot overcome. And then in chapter 3, he prays that we might know his love. And there's a whole section on this one. He wants the Ephesians to know his love. This is so important. Now we want to avoid empty sentimentality. We don't want to talk about the love and love of God in some way that's merely sentimental. And I think perhaps for fear that we might drift into sentimentality, some of us have neglected the importance of this aspect of God's character. His love. This is an essential experience for the believer. It's an an essential aspect of our life in Christ. It's not to be neglected. Paul puts a weight on the love of God in this passage that should help us and clue us into how important it is that we understand the love of God. For he says in here that we might know this love and to know the love in verse 19 of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Why? That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul wants the Ephesians to experience the fullness of God. He wants them to be mature. He wants them to experience the glory of God. And so what does he ask for? He asks that they might know the love of God. He knows for them to be mature, for them to experience glory, for them to behold glory, for them to be able to do the rest of Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, they need to know the love of God. They need to experience the love of God, this dimensionless, eternal love. He prays that they might know the dimensions of the love that is infinite in dimension. Go figure that. He prays that they would know and understand what is ultimately unknowable, that they would grasp and measure that which is infinite, beyond measure. He wants them to grasp that, to begin to grasp that. When I think of this, I think of the sun, the S-U-N sun. Do you guys know uh, how far it is from here to the sun, anyone, besides James? 93 million miles. That's a long way, isn't it? If I fired a, a gun at the sun, and bullets go really fast, right? Bullets go really fast, in case you didn't know. I fire a bullet at the sun, it would take about five years to get there. That's how far away the sun is. It's really far. The sun, at that distance, it weighs a million times the size of the earth. It burns at 27 million degrees Fahrenheit at its core. So 93 million miles away, we experience beautiful sunny days. As a matter of fact, if you look at the sun, you'll hurt your eye. The sun is pretty glorious, isn't it? It's big. A million times the size of the earth. It's hot. 
27 million degrees Fahrenheit. And yet at this distance, we can get burned easily. Matter of fact, if we didn't have the ozone, we would be fried. Yet if you move out beyond our solar system to Pluto, the temperature drops from 65 Fahrenheit to negative 400 Fahrenheit. That's almost as cold as it can be. And the effects of the sun are minimal. You see it, but you don't feel it a whole lot. I don't know, it probably would look like a large star. And if you move further beyond that, in space, you can no longer see the sun. Yet God, in His glory and in His love, burns brighter than the sun. His love is more powerful than the sun. It blazes hotter than the sun. And there's no distance you can go to get away from His love. Because as far as you could go is to sin. Because sin is the infinite extreme of God. It's to say, God, I, don't, I want the opposite of you. I want myself on the throne. I want to run from you. And so when you sin, you go to the other end of the universe. As a matter of fact, you go further than that. You go infinitely far away from God. Yet His love and its greatness burns for you. And if you're His child, His love has burned for you hotter than the sun since before time. Is that amazing? And he planned before time to send his only son, the most precious entity in the entire universe, the most glorious one there is, his own son. And in his blazing love for you as a believer, if you've turned and believed in Christ, turned from sin and believed in him, this love blazes for you. And in his blazing love, he sent his son and he put him to death on a cross for you because his love burns for you. He wants you to know His love. He wants you to be His. And that Son, that perfect One, He sacrificed for you. I heard someone recently say, I think it was from J.I. Packard, it's almost as if God loves us more than the Son. God the Son. Because He put the Son to death for you. And His love burns for you. And He gave the most precious thing He could for you. And His love is infinite. And the knowledge of, the, of His love is the knowledge of the Holy, the infinite, glorious One. And so when Paul wants the Ephesians to grow up in Christ and to live for His glory, all the things that he asked for in the rest of Ephesians, he prays that they might know this love that surpasses knowledge. He wants us to know that love. That's his prayer request. That's how Paul prays. The band could come forward as we close. So Paul has a heart full of gratitude. He knows this love. He's experienced it. He's experienced the Spirit of God illumining truth to him. And it's changed his life. And he's a humble man. And he recognizes what he has. And so he's full of gratitude. And he prays for the Ephesians that they might know by the power of the Spirit all that they have. The hope of their calling the riches of their inheritance, the power that is theirs, and the love of God as well. All the rest of Ephesians, all the rest of our Christian life flows from the answer to this prayer. So as we conclude, let us learn from this Master how to pray. How to pray for one another. Pray the same thing, to have the same attitude, gratitude as we come, and to ask God to reveal to our loved ones and our fellow church members what they have in Christ.
in an experiential, spirit-empowered way. Let's pray that way and let us pursue these things as well. And as we close, perhaps you're just recognizing, maybe you're recognizing, boy, I need to, I need to learn from Paul as well, and I need to yeah. grow in how I pray, and that's wonderful. That's one of the applications I've made and I'm making from this. But it also might be, you know what? I need, I need this sort of prayer for myself. I need to experience the Lord. I need a fresh encounter of God. God gave the manna in the desert to the people of Israel, and there was manna every day. They couldn't hold manna for the next day. That's what God calls us to. He calls us to regular experiences by the power of the Spirit, of His love and of His presence and of His truth. So we would be privileged to pray for you at the close of our time, if you're in that category. You might experience that, and certainly that is my regular prayer to you as well. Let's pray and then we'll, we'll worship this song. Lord, we thank you, Lord. And now, Lord, I ask you by your spirit, Lord, you know my prayer request this morning, that Lord, that somehow through my words I could capture that which cannot be ultimately explained and illustrated. Lord, I'm dependent on you. And we are, Lord. So we ask you, Lord, to send your spirit. Show us the Son. Show us our salvation. Fill us with the knowledge of these things experientially. Transform us, O oh God, to be a holy people live for you. To pray this way for others, we pray. In Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. So we sing, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. Yes, we do. I want to see you. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Please open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you. To see you high and lifted up. Shining in the light of your glory. Pour out your power with love as we sing, Holy, holy, holy. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. That's our prayer, then. I want to see you. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. I want to see you. I want to see you. That's our prayer. To see you high and lifted up, shining in the light of your glory. Pour out your power and love as we sing. 
of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you. Oh, yeah. 
He'll never let me go. 